Occupation. Stand-up philosopher. What? Stand-up philosopher. I coalesce the vapor of human experience into a viable and logical comprehension. Oh, a bullshit artist. Welcome to the 10th encounter of the Bullshit Artists. I'm Rory Verado uh, here with Jack Crittenden. How are you doing, Jack? Doing well, Rory. Delighted to hear we've hit double digits. Double digits, man. Uh, 10th episode. That means 20 weeks. That means five months. Hard to believe. But yes. we're, we're still going. So I have a, I have a topic in mind, actually. Uh, oh, you do? Yeah. Rather than, I mean, I'll, I'll get the ball rolling because I had this thought uh, like last week or something, and it's been, you know, itching my brain uh, ever since. And it's connected with things that have been percolating for a while, but I want to, it's going to take me a minute to try to explain it to you. So let me start by sort of building on what might be the only significant criticism or at least critical question that I've had about some of your work. And this, has, this point has always bothered me a little bit. It's nothing major, but you may recall in Democracy's Midwife, your book, when was that published? 95 or something? Uh, 91, I think. Oh, no, damn. no, no, that's not right. Uh, so beyond individualism was 91. So that must have been 2000, something like that. Oh, okay. 2001, maybe. I get, I mean, I freaking have it right in front of me. I should just look at the copyright instead of. Oh, there's an, an idea. Yeah. 2002, it says here. Okay. 2002. Okay. So, uh, I mean, I'm not going to explain the whole book to everyone. <laughs> Thank you know, God. But the gist of Although it. Although it would be helpful if you explained it to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll give my that I'm going to give my sort of whatever presentation here and then invite you to respond and correct me and clarify and all that kind of stuff. But the gist for listeners is that Jack wrote this book titled Democracy's Midwife and Education and Deliberation. And he argues in there that we should restructure and orient our public education system to facilitate the development of autonomy in students serving the political purpose, especially of having autonomous citizens. And autonomy here is a very robust developmental psychological term that Jack builds out and we could talk about. But uh, the idea here is that we want these very um, robustly autonomous, capable citizens who can scrutinize and analyze and especially deliberate together for the purpose of making decisions, serving the common good. Now, if you have issues with that explanation, Jack, you can explain in a minute, but we'll just roll with that for now. Um, my point of contention that sort of underlies some of this wild thought I was having last week is that you make a claim 
and I'll read a little bit of what you write. You make the claim basically that you can't force autonomy on people. So if you, you give the example of the Amish. These are people who uh, their entire way of life is predicated upon the absence of the kind of critical self-reflective scrutiny that we associate with autonomy. So we can't force people like the Amish to critically reflect on their sort of fundamentalist and exclusivist beliefs because to do so is maybe some form of intellectual or moral violence or, you know, harm. Um, and, and so you make this point, for example, you say on page 43, very simply, certainly no one is forced or ought to be forced either to live an autonomous life or to undertake a self-reflective examination of the kind of life one is living or wants to live. But you resolve this conundrum, in a sense, by going on to say, okay, maybe we can't force adults or we can't force uh, communities in a, a sort of blunt policy uh, way to abandon their beliefs and change. But we can say, look, the requirements for citizenship in a liberal democracy entail the ability to scrutinize and reflect on claims and beliefs. And for that reason, we can and should and perhaps must educate even Amish children for these capacities. Okay, I'll pause there. Are you with me thus far? You have any response you wanna say? Am I mischaracterizing you? No, I, I, I don't know that I'm comfortable with how you've laid it out but I think the general outline of what you're saying is, is appropriate and accurate. Okay. All right. I'll take that. That's a win. Good. Okay. So uh, let me read a little bit more here. So here's, here's sort of a passage that drives this home for me. Um, so regarding what I just said, you write, uh, do the Amish deny their children the opportunity to participate in American life? If their form of organized education fails to prepare those children to carry out their obligations as citizens, then the state may have to intrude. The state would do so because it also has an interest in the development of those children, for they will be future citizens. Dropping down a bit, you summarize by saying, in short, as I shall argue in later chapters, the state has an obligation to see that all of its future citizens have met the democratic educational standards, whether those are met in public, private, or home schools. One more short passage, because I think this ties things up. You write, uh, ask, speaking of the Amish still, you ask, but is, it on, is theirs an autonomous life? That is, a way of life self-reflectively investigated and thereby committed to a way of life open to other possibilities, or to the differences of others. If it is not, then forcing the Amish to look reflectively at their way of life might get some of them to change their minds. Yet the coercion itself is a violation of their rights and of autonomy, and thus it contradicts the very basis upon which that action was taken. So that seems to be the rub for you. And... Wait, why is it the rub for me? Like that, that's sort of a, 
I guess what I mean by that is like, that's a bit of a paradox or like something that we have to acknowledge and try to resolve or work around that we can't coerce people to become autonomy because that coercion is itself a violation of autonomy. So like Rousseau says, you know, you have to force people to be free or whatever. It seems like you're saying, at least from a liberal, modern liberal perspective, that no, we can't really do that, at least not so bluntly. Do you have something you wanted to say to that? Am I getting something wrong or, or do you want to clarify that? Uh, I want to think about it. <laughs> so, uh, which apparently I can't do since we're on a podcast. Well, unless we you want to keep, unless you want to keep talking, and I'll <laughs> pretend to be listening to you when I'm actually thinking about what I need to think about. Well, we can do two things. One, I can keep talking a little bit, and two, we can pause, and you can think, and I'll cut that from the podcast. No, no. The, the, if we go back to what we talked about last encounter. The whole point for us of education is to demonstrate the ability to think about something for the first time or how we reflect on it. That's okay, so extemporaneously. The, so I'm thinking now that what I wrote may very well not be true. <laughs> okay. uh, is it a violation of your autonomy? to require someone else to act autonomously. Well, no, it's not a violation of your autonomy, but it would be a violation of theirs, right? And maybe that's what I wrote. I don't remember. I'd have to go actually get my own book. I think look. you did. It's a violation of, I mean, you're, you speak a little more genera- generally, you say the coercion itself is a violation of their yeah. rights and of autonomy. That I, I think that's, I still would hold to that. Okay. I would, still, I would still hold to that. That's fair. And I think the way that you then later in the book uh, continue to elaborate. So we already had the sort of educational um, maneuver that you make to say, no, we can't impose this upon communities wholesale, but we can say to them that in order to be, in order to have, you know, membership as citizens, you must be able to behave in these ways and to use the skills of autonomy and therefore you need to be educated in autonomy. No, okay. So I have to stop you there because that, that's not what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. Clarify. So if you look at the subtitle of the book, it's, education in deliberation right there isn't any mention of autonomy there and that's fully intentional because what i'm arguing in the book is that the conditions for deliberation are the same as the conditions for autonomy but it is the focus or the target that makes for me the entire difference so my argument is that i want schools to to establish the conditions of deliberation and require students to deliberate, but not to exercise autonomy. The target isn't to make them autonomous or to demand that they be autonomous. That's not the goal. The goal is deliberation. It just so happens that that is 
one of the central conditions for being autonomous. And the reason I pull back is for the very reason that you cited at the outset, which is that it goes too far to require students to be autonomous. It is a violation of what I think is their sense of identity. And that's not the purpose of schools for me. I was muted. Can you hear me now? I can. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think you muted when you coughed. Oh yeah. I try to do that. Thank you. Cause you pulled away and I said, oh my God, I can't hear a thing. How can he hear the refrigerator? I can't even hear him coughing. I'm always flicking this little red mute button on the mic. It's like a, an instrument. Um, but okay. Thank you for that clarification. And that's exactly where I was going. So I was speaking too strongly a moment ago because in my mind, I knew I was building towards actually making the exact clarification that you just made. So I'm going to okay. support your comment with some textual evidence. Uh, Good. From, I'm, from, I'm, glad, I'm glad I had some. Yeah. Yeah. You did make this, you made that exact point. Um, and you really, you spend a significant amount of time making that point in a way that I find both convincing and that I want to challenge. This is getting closer to my, my thought that launched this conversation, which I haven't explained yet. Um, but you write, for example, later in the book, you say public schools and the state have no right to force students to examine their own ways of life. Public school teachers cannot demand that students think self-reflectively about their deeply held beliefs. That is, students can, should, and must learn the skills central to critical inquiry so that even religious students who may well grow up to be religious parents can scrutinize other ways of life when confronted by them, but they cannot be required to turn those skills onto themselves. So this, I, my understanding based on these passages and what you just said is that that is a very significant difference for you between sort of learning the skills of deliberation on the one hand and then being forced or maybe even just cajoled, I'm not sure where you would draw the line, into turning those critical reflective skills inward on one's own inherited beliefs. The first you say is essential, learning the skills of deliberation. The second you say could be harmful, at least for some students. Are we right. in agreement there? We are. Okay. So my part of my concern, or, or maybe just what bothers me, is that, well, first let me say, it strikes me as unlikely that a student who develops these skills will not then turn them inward at some point, even in the absence of facilitation by a teacher or anyone else. But that's an empirical question. And we can't really answer that, you know, whether people will do that or not. But it just seems it just seems likely to me that, you know, if you are critically inquiring into others' beliefs at some point, you will critically inquire into yours, your own. So but but I guess where I where I'm headed with this is can we 
conceptualize a way, either an alternative way or a justifiable and legitimate way to either coerce or at least strongly motivate students to do that inward turn. We can even think of it metaphorically, like that's, that's the dragging up the rough steep path, perhaps out of Plato's cave. Right. So I, I don't know, do you have any thoughts? Like, can we, can it be justified in, in th- at least in theory or in principle to impose the development of autonomy on others? Or do, would you say it's always wrong? Uh, well, first, let me say that your, your rendition of what I said, rephrase, your rendition of where you went with what I said, I think is accurate because in the book, I say something very similar to that. Mm. And it was something like it very much in the, in the vein of what you said. It's unlikely that, that students who are smart enough to be able to develop their critical thinking skills will not use those in their own personal environments. Now it's possible they, they might not. They might themselves draw the line just the way I'm suggesting that teachers will draw the line. But the likelihood is that they are going to be examining their family values, their community values. Yes, I think that's completely reasonable. And as I say, I say that in the book at some point, maybe more than once. You probably do. I'm just wondering if it's like, is that just a a formality for you? Like, are you you trying to create a justification uh, for yourself within liberal terms to say, look, we're not coercing, we're not forcing, but nevertheless, secretly, <laughs> you know, they're probably going to follow through, you know, with where I, we want them to go. Well, I think one is, as you said, it's an empirical question. And I think I'm simply recognizing the, I, what you and I both think is the likelihood of what, what young people will do with the skills they're developing. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm finessing this point to make it fit in with some notion of liberalism. I actually think that it's not appropriate for public school teachers, K through 12, to demand that their students reflect on their own identities and personal values. I do think it's appropriate for college teachers to do that. And, and I, make, I draw the line because e- even in a public institution, and I draw that line because it, it, as you know, when you move into higher education, you're moving away from authority figures who will command your classroom. The obligations you have are to values that that you bring into the classroom. The problem with public education K through 12 is that you are not solely responsible as a teacher for what those values are. As you've said, your job is to subvert those values, which is perfectly understandable and okay. You know what you're doing and 
presumably the people you're working with and for will know what you're doing, but you're working for somebody, right? We talked about this in prior encounters about what authority is and who has authority and to right. whom do you, do you report. So I'm not doing it as, as a way of being drawing some very fine line as a theorist. I actually think it's a really important point in, in human growth, mm. in personal development of what we can require and what we have to just let go. Okay, so well, how did you leave the question with me? Do I think, did, did you say, do I think it's ever appropriate? How did you say it? I was just sort of wondering, and we'll see, you'll see where I'm headed with this in a minute. I'm wondering if it, if it can ever be, at least in principle, sort of justified or legitimate to impose autonomy or, and this is, will begin to tip my hand a bit, or even further levels of development upon people who either are not asking for it or who may be harmed in some ways by it. Can it ever be legitimate or justified to do that? Yeah, I think it can. Uh, right now I'm thinking it, it can't unless you are an agent of the state. <laughs> Private citizen like Socrates. Yeah, then, then it is, then you go too far. Yeah. But I can imagine all sorts of voluntary associations, organizations of which you are a member, which is d making demands of you to, to examine self-reflectively the values that you hold. Mm -hmm. I, I can give you an example if you yeah. want an example. Okay, yeah, so- sure. This for me is the distinction between freedom and autonomy. They're often used interchangeably and they are absolutely not the same idea, not the same concept. So imagine you are a member of a congregation. Hard for you to imagine because we know that you are a deep rooted atheist. Uh, <laughs> well, in large part because I was once member, a member of okay, a congregation. So, <laughs> so it won't be difficult for you to put yourself in this position or to remember back to when you actually were in this position. Yes. So you're a member of a congregation and the pastor, priest, rabbi, imam, whatever, is unhappy with the congregation because he thinks they are uh, just Sunday seat dwellers. They come in, they sit down, they sing hymns, they sing praises, they hear the sermon, the whatever, and they go about their business. But there is not a level of commitment or understanding of the script to the scriptures and of the scripture, right? So the the head of this congregation decides that he is going to put his congregants through a test. And the test is how much do you know, what do you understand of what we do and what we believe? And if you fail the test, you can't be a member of this congregation. Now, I think what he is doing there in many ways is saying, I'm calling into question some of the central values around which you may have built your identity. And I'm asking you to reflect on that. How important is it into your life? What are the things you, you believe that you carry with you that are important? And I'm going to test you on those. That to me seems completely legitimate. Hmm. You have the, the right not to participate. You are free to leave. But if you're going to remain, he's demanding that you be, you act autonomously in this condition, in this circumstance. So, the freedom is you can leave. You don't have to stay there. No one's making you do this. But because your identity is so perhaps wrapped up in the congregation and what and the beliefs that hold the congregation together, you're you're 
not free in the sense that your identity is tied to this. Right. And so in order for you to continue, you have to participate in this act of what you might call this autonomous evaluation or an evaluation of your, what's an autonomous evaluation, I guess you'd leave it like that. So yeah, so I think there are absolutely times people can do it. And uh, so you're saying, let me just, let me paraphrase what you said to make sure I'm, I'm getting it. I think you may have given this example in the book. It's been a long time since I read it or something similar, but <laughs> yeah. You're basically saying, think how I feel. Yeah, right. Well, you wrote it. <laughs> I don't remember anything I wrote. I barely remember anything I wrote. <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for. But yes, um, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so you're basically saying, like, if you're in a, com- if you're part of a community that at least that it like is supposed to I- engage, have certain beliefs and or engage in certain practices. And a leader or perhaps even just another member of that community sort of calls people to account and says, hey, motherfuckers, like, you know, you haven't read scripture in 10 years or whatever. You don't even know the names of the gospels or whatever. You know, he's he's sort of calling people out and saying that they're not what they say they are or maybe more accurately who they say they are, as you were pointing out, like how this connects with identity then that is sort of like a prompt. That's like a, a prompting or a, a push or whatever for these people to, a, a, legitimate, a legitimate and justified prompt to get these people to sort of step up and either develop or re-engage autonomously in their lives. Is that the, is that yeah. the gist of what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, I, I would rather put the onus on an authority figure than just another congregant because that person may have no weight for you. Now, it may be that the leader of the congregation also has no weight, in which case you probably wouldn't put up with the test that he wants or she wants to put you through and you might very well leave. But yeah, you've got that. That's the gist. You're right. Okay. Good. So uh, then if that's an example of a justified, a case where the imposition of autonomy or even coercion of autonomy or at least autonomous, autonomous behavior is legitimate or justified, then at least in some cases, it can be legitimate and justified. So that's, but you made an important, what I, what I agree, I think, is an important distinction or you pointed out a potential problem, which is that if you have an agent of the state coercing in this fashion, where you know you don't have that freedom to leave, you don't have that freedom to opt out as a member of religious community might, for example, then that starts to become, and I think almost certainly is, you know, an abuse of power and, and an unjustified sort of form of psychological violence or something like that to, to do that. So that, that was part of the problem for me as I was thinking about these thoughts that I've been having is, let me connect to some of what I was thinking that prompted all of this, because I was thinking about part of my concern as you and probably listeners at this point know is the survival of the species in the face of not just impending 
climate breakdown and all the other problems that we have, but actually happening right now, climate breakdown and other problems, and that we know is going to worsen perhaps exponentially in the near future and almost certainly during my lifetime and the lifetimes of people a generation or two younger than me. As Jack, as you always point out, you're going to sail away to Valhalla before (laughs) all this shit goes down. So lucky you. But, uh, you know, my, uh, my, so theoretically, like, you know, from a theory perspective, my concern is, and the question is like, okay, if we posit that a solution and perhaps the only solution for humans to survive or at least to significantly mitigate their imminent losses is to undergo a rapid and perhaps unprecedented mass transformation of consciousness. If we posit that that is the case, then can we in some way justify imposing that transformation collectively? And I started thinking about psychedelics. I've often joked, I don't know if I made this joke to you, but the idea that we should aerosolize LSD, you know, or whatever, psilocybin, and blast it at the earth from outer space, you know, from a satellite, just blast the planet, dose it and douse it with psychedelics so that the whole planet undergoes a simultaneous psychedelic experience. Okay, now that's a joke, but it's a question that raises some of these concerns. Can we be justified in imposing even the, the possibility of this type of mass transformation? So we know that not everybody who takes psychedelics is going to magically transform into the Buddha or whatever, but some significant portion on the order of like millions, tens of millions of people, perhaps even hundreds of millions would, I, I would argue, uh, undergo some significant transformation that would bring them closer to being the type of persons that we need them to be in order to reorganize society abruptly along the lines that we need to so that we can achieve what Robert J. Lifton calls the climate swerve, which is this last minute fucking maneuver away from the cliff's edge that we have to make as a species if we're going to survive the near future. Okay. So I was thinking there's an example of this madman in Los Angeles or somewhere a couple of years ago who had a similar thought to the one I was just explaining. He, his idea was to dump a bunch of LSD into the Los Angeles. I think it's a County Los Angeles County water supply through the processing plant there. And his express purpose was to promulgate some kind of, you know, transformation or some kind of uh, transformative experience. And that raises concerns for me along the lines of what I was just talking about, which is that it's indiscriminate. You got babies and children, you know, drinking acid and tripping and people, people who have pre-existing conditions or predisposed to schizophrenia or something. So you can't do that. That's fucked up. 
Now you could maybe make a utilitarian argument and say, well, if 10% of the people are irreparably harmed or killed, it's worth it if 50% of them have a transformative experience. And, and as a result, 3 billion people fewer die during this century. Okay, that's a utilitarian argument. You'd have to build it out. I'm not sure if I buy it just in any form off the top of my head. But then the question, and this is where I'm sort of connecting what we were talking about a minute ago, and I'm like pivoting a little bit, becomes, is there a way to do that on a mass scale, facilitate a mass planetary transformative experience without being either indiscriminate or coercive. And where I landed, and I this was like a crazy sort of insight that I had, or at least what I thought might be an intriguing thought experiment or something to build out in a discussion, would, and also inspired by some of what we talked about in previous encounters about rites of passage, is what if we had an authority figure invite people to participate in a ritualized uh, transformative experience, perhaps involving psychedelic substances, at least for those who both want to consume them and can safely consume them. And we say it's for this express purpose. Like imagine we have President you know, Krishnamurti or whatever, come in and say, hey, folks, I'm going to hand out psilocybin to everyone. We're going to mail it directly to your doorstep or ayahuasca or whatever. And we're all going to take it as part of this week-long festival uh, aimed at saving our lives <laughs> or whatever. Do you see where I'm going with that? So could there be does that does that resolve the issue or at least does that get, does that suggest a fruitful direction for exploration to say look here's a political leader inviting validating normalizing and creating a ritualized process for transformation of consciousness i know i just dumped uh, a lot on you sorry yeah uh <laughs> The last, the phrase transformation of consciousness thro throws me off a little bit um, because I'm not sure that you can presuppose, you, I'm not sure you can suppose that will happen. Uh, and I don't, as you mentioned, I don't know why it might not result in people reverting to prior levels or stages of consciousness that they could, they could uh, revert to some kind of infantile state. In other words, there's no guarantee it's gonna be a positive transformation. Sure. But, yeah. but let me think about, uh, let me think out loud for a minute about what you said. And it's interesting that you, you said, okay, we have a president Krishnamurti, doesn't matter. It, but, but it comes back to one of the early, our early encounters, we talked about the philosopher king. Right, right. Where the philosopher king has said, I, I, I have insight into what the good is, and this is good for you. So there, you get into this paternalism business. But let's say we could get out of get out of that mindset for a minute, 
you probably know because it it appeared in New York and it might be gone now, but it's it's now in Los Angeles and it's coming to Phoenix. This is the immersive Van Gogh experience. Oh, you know? I haven't heard of it actually. So this is a, an experience where you enter into a museum or maybe it's even in galleries and they, it's, it's an immersive experience where you are inside the paintings of Van Gogh. So I guess one room is Starry Starry Night and another room is something else. And you go through these rooms and it's, I don't want to say it's totally immersive, but it's sights, sounds, I don't know about smells. I don't know how many of the senses are involved in this. Okay, so imagine you had something like that to offer in which you said to people, we can show you what life beyond the climate crisis will look like. If we can get out of this climate crisis, we can show you what life will look like. And it's gonna require you to have an immersive experience which will be to take some safe level of, uh, of a psychedelic and be in a safe environment where there will be guides to explain to you what's happening. And uh, this will allow you to experience what it would be like to live in a world where you don't have to worry about global warming. Uh, something like that, I think you could do Now, the, your concern, I think, immediately would be, well, you're not going to get enough people, but I think you might. I don't know. I don't know whether you would or you wouldn't. The question is whether you force people to have the experience. Right. You require them. Uh, now we're deep into paternalism. We're deep into this, this fear that, that elites know better than we do what life should be like. And your position is, I know better than you what is going to happen to the planet. And I'm suggesting a way different from yours, meaning people, on how you can overcome these problems. So you have to trust me or I'm going to have the ability, authority to force you to do it. <laughs> well, now, okay, those are the questions, right? So you're putting words in my mouth a little bit there because- Well, I'm, I wasn't, I didn't mean you personally. Oh, you're I just meant, abstractly. Yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm not saying Rory the elitist. I'm saying you get into this problem where President Krishnamurti or, or world Lord Krishnamurti is saying everyone <laughs> will do this. Maitreya, because, right? <laughs> because I, yeah, I know the good. I've seen the good, I know the good, and therefore you you must do these things. Right, and so, yes, so this is like the central, this is what's been gnawing at me. And that's why I started with that, interrogating the process uh, of cultivating autonomy in the classroom. And I'm thinking, because there, I, there is a certain isomorphism here that is loosely defined for me, but that I'm working on developing. And the so the, I think it would be important for the leader, the president or whomever, for it to be voluntary. That's what I was saying about the inv invitation, right? right? But right. the power comes just in the same way that the teacher doesn't need to, uh, you know, abuse or even use really his or her, her authority, formal authority in the classroom. 
so too does the president or whomever not really he doesn't he or she doesn't need to issue an executive order saying okay you're taking a heroic dose of psilocybin at 3 p.m on tuesday uh at gunpoint rather make it an event make it totally voluntary the president is going to do it live on national global tv it's going to be part of this very uh deliberate sort of ceremony and even festival or ritual etc etc and anyone who wants to participate supplies will be provided to you guides will be provided to you Uh, it will it will be a massive public works project almost to say like we're all going to celebrate as a society and ideally you know still thinking here totally theoretically as a species if we did have that benevolent despot uh that we talked about before or if we did have world leader krishnamurti or whatever and we could unite and say look we're going to do this voluntarily some percentage of the population perhaps significant percentage will say sweet Let's do it. Now, how many of them are going to come from a self-conscious perspective of doing it for the purpose that I'm suggesting that because I know the good or whatever, that this is the, this is the end game. Few, perhaps none are going to come to it self-consciously that way. Right. But many of them will come to it with, I think, good intentions in general, whatever those good intentions may be. And participating in that sense of community and that ritual and all of those things we talked about before, I think could be transformative if we get 20% of the population. Now, many of them, as you pointed out, will not, just because you take psychedelics does not necessarily entail that you're going to have a transformation of consciousness. And probably really it's a minority of psychedelic users who have a transformation of consciousness, at least on any given trip. But let's, let's just pull numbers out of our ass and say, okay, it's going to be 30%, 20%, 2%, whatever. That's still, in my view, like a resounding success. I, so basically here, this is, let me put it this way. I'm, I'm wondering how can, how, if at all, can we legitimately and justifiably use the apparatus of the state, including its personal leadership, to not impose, but facilitate transformation of consciousness in this fashion? Well, there's a lot there. Uh, I sent you something which I'm going to refer to as the dialogue. Yes. I think you'll find it interesting because there's a section of it that emphasizes the importance of story. And later on in the dialogue, there's an element where I talk about some studies that have been done showing that if you get 10% of a population to accept an unpopular viewpoint, that 10% quickly snowballs into something pretty, some pretty impressive number. You don't, that, that's the threshold where things begin to turn. Like a tipping point, basically. Like a tipping point. Yeah. 
so I think you're along, you're operating along, along that line. What is the percentage you need to, to really turn a community's perspective, worldview in a new direction? Right. Ken, Ken Wilber has been talking about this. I'm realizing I'm subtly influenced. Like he talks about the leading edge, right? Of right. consciousness. Yeah. Right. He, he's, yeah. He's always talking about that. Um, and he's got some percentages in there about what, what percentage of the population is where on the developmental scale. And I've still to this day have no idea where he gets those numbers. I he's have never, wondered that too. I, he doesn't really validate it. So I, I don't pay a lot of attention to that, that part of what he's saying. Yeah. But let me ask you, how many people do you think in this country and possibly worldwide watched Game of Thrones? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, it's millions, tens of millions. I don't know if it would be hundreds of millions, but it seems plausible. Yeah. And, and nobody had to be coerced to do it. Right. Well, maybe some people did. Uh certainly for some episodes where family members <laughs> drag said, you, this is what we're doing. We're eating yeah. dinner. You're watching it. All but of my, season eight. I don't know if you, did you watch Game yeah. of Thrones? Yeah. yeah oh my fucking God, dude. <laughs> season eight. I mean, it's but, been bad since season six, but season eight was just insulting. <laughs> okay. So I didn't say how many thought it was good. I just said how many people watched it. Uh, but so I'm, I'm headed in the, the opposite direction. I'm, I, when I'm not the opposite direction, I'm headed up, but I'm starting at the bottom. Yeah. People don't have to be convinced to go to raves or coerced to go to raves or to watch Game of Thrones. There's, there's something that they find attractive and appealing about it, and they want to see it. It becomes a, like a cultural event. Right. So I would start there, and I'd start there with the power of story, and I'd start there with the power of influencers, celebrities, sports figures. Uh, and maybe the last group would be politicians, but some of them as well, people that you might respect, uh, who are just encouraging this, this immersive encounter. And I think for me, the, the lure would be, you want something that would, appeals, that would appeal across the political spectrum, and it would be something like this. Do, do you want to, be, to deepen the love you have for the people you cherish? Mm. Now, you're not saying, do you want to deepen the love you have for the planet? There's some people who are gravitate to that, but you're saying for the people you cherish, the people you already love, do you want to deepen that love? And I don't can't imagine anybody on the left or the right saying no. <laughs> no, either I don't care about them enough to want to love them more, or I can't love them more. I think people would say, yeah. And say, well, we're going to create an immersive experience where your love will deepen. And you're not saying it's going to deepen for the planet or for humanity, or you're going to come to learn Republic, love Republicans or come to love Democrats. It's the people you already cherish, the people already important to you. Yes. And you're not saying that the, that, that the circle will expand. Right. I think you don't need to. Because you don't need to. I think that's the lore and they will come. And then, you know, and this is one thing I was going to say about your, your perspective on, on the psychedelic experience. They pretty much have it down now to understand how you can turn people within and how you can help them grow. That's pretty yeah. much that, that clinically, that's pretty much down. So, so the immersive experience would be one like this Van Gogh exhibit, where you'd be surrounded by music and visualization and guides to help you. And you would just take it in. I mean, people on you, you mentioned early on in our encounters using ecstasy. Right. It's pretty, I think, it, I, I don't know about this, but it seems to me it's, it's pretty tough to, 
decide you want to commit violent crimes uh, when you're on ecstasy. Maybe yeah. people do, but I think it has a certain predictable result. So that's what I, so I would make it, a, try to make it a cultural event across the globe where the people that, that uh, folks listen to, again, whether they're musicians or actors or TikTok kids <laughs> or whatever they are, right, uh, encourage this to go on. So it becomes, it becomes a uh, nas regional, national, global event across time and keep going and going and going. But I think, as I said, I'm just going to repeat, the lore for me is this deepening of love, mm -hmm. uh, which, again, you know, they, the Proud Boys are going to be interested in that, right? And so are the members of Black Lives Matter. I mean, nobody's going to say no, no, no. Uh -uh. You know, people would say, no, 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 I'm not here to save the planet. Fuck the planet. Right. Right. No, I, I agree. I really like that lore, as you put it, because I think it does the most important work that it needs to do, which is exactly what you just pointed out, which is it cuts across all audiences. Right. Every, as you say, everyone will want that. Now, of course, there will be some who don't for even if, if they're just like contrarians or uh, anti uh, drug fundamentalists or whatever, you know, and, and it's okay. So it, those people won't be included, but, but, but it's tough for them yeah. to say, because when, when you have friends, neighbors, loved ones, having had the experience and they say, Oh, you got to do this. Oh, right. you have to do it. No, no, no. It's not for me. Oh, it's for everybody. It's fabulous. It's the best thing you've ever done. You'll ever experience. Right. Then you have that sort of soft power from the community yeah. and from, but, but you, but you've raised the two, the two, I think the two ends of the spectrum that are absolutely vital to, to consider. And that is the top down, uh, the, the top down power that isn't coercing, but it's pushing toward it. Right. And the bottom up uh, influence of just multiple people. Yes. Oh, you know, the, the populist version versus the, what's the, what's the other one? The, I don't want to call it authoritarian, but we're, we're <laughs> authoritative, about, perhaps authoritative, I mean, maybe. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. can think of a better word, but that captures the spirit. But, oh. but yeah. And the reason that's good is that in the middle, it is, it, it's the authorities in, in quotation marks yes. in the middle. That's the middle of the spectrum, because those are people that you admire. They're not people who have, whose authority is, is foisted on them. It's people that they come to admire again, whether it's sports figures, musicians, leaders of your community, your group, right. um, whoever it's going to be, that you look to them because you recognize and accept their authority. Uh, yes. And it would yeah. be nice, I think, like that's, so I completely agree with you about like recruiting artists and people from all avenues of cultural activity and that, and to make this a, a cultural event. But the reason I started with politics politics and politicians well there's a few reasons one of which is that certainly in the united states psychedelics have long been outlawed yeah. um and stigmatized uh and all these kinds of things and so there's some necessary work that needs to be done political work in turning that around and i think at the same time you can have you know it's not going to be joe biden doing this it's going to be someone like me or some or, or somebody who 
who likes who who believes in this, right? Right. Is my point. So it's yeah. not. So somebody comes along and deconstructs the uh, the the authority of the position or the role of president or whatever, and by by the act of participating in this festival and this ritual and also helping the community at large to participate, sort of organizing this whole affair, saying not only is this legal, but we're going to, you know, stop blowing up black and brown people in the Middle East and Africa. And we're going to use that money to uh, fund the distribution of the materials needed to conduct this national ritual. So we're going to, you know, we're going to use the state to serve our interests, our real interests is my point. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. 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 Go ahead. For me, the, the attraction, the power of the, of the event uh, is the real attraction to say that we're not going to blow up brown and black people. We're going to use that money to, to foster these rituals just on the face of it sounds like the wrong message for me. I'm saying that I'm not saying that's going to be on like the flyer for the festival. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm saying that. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yes. So just funds might be diverted, but even that, uh, well, because you're going to be sensitive to this. Once you get the state involved, things can very quickly get out of hand. You can lose control of the event. It loses its spontaneity. Um, If you have, if you actually believe in the power of the ritual, if it's constructed in the right way, as we've been talking about the elements that would be in it, let the power of the ritual lead the way. Yes. So you you won't have to do these other things. People won't be able to stay away from it. Now the questions are: if the fear is you'll run out of funds, this is this is in, in our cultures, in the developed world, that's what philanthropy is about, right? Or just printing money because we have well you know, fiat but, currency. So yeah, well, okay, so yeah, yeah maybe uh, you know, we make our own rules. Well, certainly in the cyber world, you could maybe do that. But, but my point is that the, I, I think the philanthropists like, like Gates and Thiel and Musk like to think of themselves as cultural influencers. And they might very well want to get in on this. So I don't know that the, fund, the lack of funds would be an issue. I actually think for me, just listening to you talk, it's, it is the power of the experience that will bring people. Yes. And the, the publicity is about again the deepening of love i mean it, it, as you it, as we've both been saying who, who's going to oppose it <laughs> right well wait a minute you, you don't mean i'm going to have to love this guy down the block you can say no it's the deepening deepening the love you already hold for the people you cherish right because and they can't that... but then you know if you, you've read wide as the world right i i think that the your identity will begin to expand the sense, your sense of who's in the circle of love will expand. There's nothing right. you can do about it. No, you're, you're fucked. You're on yeah. the ride. Yeah, you know? that's right. It's too late. Once you're, once you're in there. Yes. Cause late. it, cause it sort of, 
uh, I'm going to say that it's parasitic upon, even though it has a negative connotation, but I can't think of a better word. It's sort of, it's like in, in focusing on, let's say there's a, a white supremacist who doesn't want to do this because he doesn't want to end up loving black people or whatever afterwards. And so we say to him exactly what you just said, don't worry about that. It focus on the fact that this is going to deepen the love for the people that you already love. Well, as he or she goes through that actual experience, it, it's through his or her pre-existing feelings of love for that narrow group of people, you know, his white family or whatever, that, you know, sort of like a rushing river, it's just going to push him. It's just going to push outward anyway. The dam's going to break. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like the current's going to be pushing against them, but not for long because it's going to burst. So I'm, I'm with you there. Like, I really, I, I do think that that's a great sort of hook to get all, to meet everyone where they are, which I, th- which I right. always think is, an, is a crucial sort of educational concern yeah. for this stuff. So what did I want to say? Oh, okay. So yeah, the things you were pointing out about like, it sounds like you're basically saying, you know, don't muddy the waters. Don't uh, just keep it simple. Focus on the festival, focus on the fun, uh, that kind of thing. And it, make it, that will make it as maximally attractive to people and sort of entice them to voluntarily participate as possible. And I agree. So I guess let me just sort of caveat that like, I'm thinking through this from multiple angles and we can even say that there are inward and outward perspectives to consider. So outward facing, yeah, it's going to be that way. Inward facing for my own like political theoretical thinking through all of this stuff and what I'm interested in, you know, intellectually is like untangling, untangling the sort of political economy that we have through the metaphor of this transformative experience. That's where I'm talking about some of this other stuff. So like, I really, I want to, I want to argue that this could be like a revolution, a nonviolent revolution. So let's say that the president does the types of things I was describing. He uses the uh, formal authority that he has to de-schedule psychedelics, makes a big show of it, recruits cultural influencers. And again, as I said earlier, like organizes a national or even global celebration. This is a celebration, however we want to construe that we have to get from point A to point Z. So we'll say, okay, the solstice, June 22nd, summer solstice or whatever, June uh, 2022, I mean, 2022. Uh, We're going to have this festival. Building to that, I think itself could be transformative at like the collective level, slowly, gradually, and then the festival itself is like, how do I want to put it? Like uh, implementing that at the individual level, but in aggregate, right? 
Right. So it's, it's, it's decentralized. It's decentralized, right. even though it's coming from above, but as you pointed out, and I want to mention this before I forget, it's coming from above and below at the same time. And that I think is actually really important because it, as we were saying with like the word of mouth influencing people. So some people might be persuaded, let's say whoever some I'm elected as a democratic president. And I do this whole thing that I'm saying that the president should do, President Krishnamurti should do. Well, some people will say, okay, the Democratic president is saying this is a good idea. I'm a Democrat. I'm going to do it. They're influenced by the top-down element in that example. Many other people might be resistant, including, for example, Republicans. But then they could be influenced from the bottom-up way that you were pointing out. What matters to me is that between those two forces, we could think of that as like a feedback loop, right? Where you have more and more authority figures say, saying, you know, this is a good idea. I support this, et cetera, et cetera. More and more people at the bottom saying, I'm going, I'm going to do this, or I did this. It was awesome, et cetera, et cetera. And that creates sort of a, a ratcheting effect that has the potential to cause this to spread widely among the population very quickly, right? It catches fire. Right. So, and I just like the elegance of that because the, uh, one of the main concerns with climate is what they call self-reinforcing feedback loops, where once you start down a certain path, uh, you know, these forces and processes accelerate and, and reinforce one another. Well, this is a countervailing feedback loop. If we think of it as like humans are self-consciously undertaking a process for transformation to push back against what's happening in the material world, climatically and otherwise. Right. Well, I'm going to push back here. Okay, do it. Because, and I cannot believe I'm about to take on the persona of Rory Verato uh -oh. in doing it. Um, <laughs> if there is a group of parasites living on a host, it is politicians. <laughs> and the host is the body politic. Sure. So in my view of what you just said, I'm going to give you the fearful view. Politicians will want to latch onto this because it, from the bottom up, it becomes an event. It becomes a cultural onslaught. It is incredibly popular. And a politician, being a parasite, will want to, will want to get a taste. Of course, Ted now, Cruz. <laughs> Yeah. And the good, yeah. so the good news would be you use the power of the government to foster these rituals at the local level, the state level, the federal level. But I think what then occurs is the desire by the parasites to control the host. Mm. And that means that they want to do two things. They want to focus it and they want power over it. 
And the focus might be, well, look, we can get these people to have these experiences about loving their cherished few who may become their cherished many. <laughs> but let's have them love our party more. Let's focus it so they love the Democrats or they love the Republicans. Let's focus it so they, so they love the idea about projecting this American ritual into the world. It becomes ours and we control it and we label it. Right. And it's, it's what we do for people, meaning also what we, what we do to people. So that's the concern. So the issue for me would be the movement, the bottom-up movement has to be so, so powerful the wave has to be so, so tsunami-like that it will just crush a politician rather than allowing them to ride it on a surfboard, right? You can't ride it. You're just going to be swallowed up. Yes. That, that to me is the, is the dilemma. If you start thinking about the top down, it's the, the control, it's the refocusing and control of the, of the movement, the ritual. Uh, and I, I worry about that. And I say that it's the I'm being the persona of Roy Verato because this is the position I thought you would take. Yes. Being cautious about and and almost cynical about what government does. Okay. I, I get what you're saying and I agree. So if if I if someone were proposing this in that way, then that's exactly the position I would articulate, right? So I wouldn't, I would say if uh, a Republican president comes along and is persuaded that something like this ritual could be used to sort of um, like metamorphosize the population or the body politic into like a more homogenous Republican mass, right? So through the use of iconography and uh, uh, manipulative tactics by whatever guides might be provided, right? right? right. That, that we would inculcate, we would make use of this potentially transformative experience to instead just kind of mold people into nationalists or whatever, you know? Yeah. I think that's sort of what you're su suggesting. And so, yeah, so I would say, fuck that shit. Like, absolutely not. But I think there are two things that come to mind. First of all, I think that the nature of the experience militates against that possibility. Maybe not completely, but at least partially and maybe mostly. So in other words, I personally find it unlikely that a psychedelic experience could be used to sort of control and and cause people to conform in that way because it's it's so freeing now maybe well, that that's the conditions worth... are right the stanford prison experiment or something then in fact <laughs> stanford prison experiment on acid exactly exactly <laughs> then those wardens are really going to start beating the shit you know it's going to be abu Ghraib. uh well that's worth investigating that's really worth researching yeah what so if 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 clinicians now understand how to use the experience of psilocybin in a way to help people overcome issues of addiction, PTSD, uh, fear of dying. Can they also learn 
to set up experiences where people learn to refocus on enemies. These, these are the bad people. Right. We are the good people. Uh, because if that's the case, if you can use psychedelics in that way, and I'm thinking about now the government experiments, MK Ultra, oh, yeah. and these other programs that they use where they were giving people LSD un unbeknownst to them, and they were trying to get them to, in some cases, prostitutes were giving them LSD to try to get these people to reveal secrets, or the people more likely to talk under LSD, that sort of thing. You know, they filled entire subway cars in the 50s, I think, in New York City with LSD unbeknownst to the passengers. Yeah, I'm not surprised. To, yeah. yeah, but you should Just look to see at what would happen. This program called MK Ultra, uh, run out, uh, run by the CIA. But yeah, so it's worth researching whether whether you can use these experiences for good or ill. And right. my concern is, and maybe not, maybe that's too stark. Maybe it's just that you you can learn, as you were suggesting, to manipulate people in, into certain directions, yes. into certain experiences. So it's not a freeing, right? It's really a, a, a redirecting, a channeling into into certain uh, into certain mind views, mindsets, worldviews. Uh, I'm just I'm just skeptical. I'm trying to think of any cultural phenomenon that has occurred that was too big for government to fuck up <laughs> or take over. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. I have to think about that one. Well, I guess I would just say for me, at least that's where I have the luxury of just uh, sort of jumping tracks. Right. So on the one hand, we're speaking about this in a very sort of realistic, empirical, historical fashion in the United States government and all that it brings with it. And at the same time, I'm being, and we are being completely imaginative, theoretically, you know, this is the Kallipolis at the same time, right? At least that's what I'm doing with it. I want to say I'm imagining a, a sort of almost magical transformation of the United States government. So I'm yeah. going to pick and choose. I'm going to, you know, float around and, uh, and all those kinds of things. So I don't have, I guess, in other words, where it suits me and where I think, you know, insight can be gleaned. I'm willing to make certain leaps of faith or suspend disbelief, et cetera, et cetera, for the purpose of making the, the larger point that I want to make which is to say that something like what I'm suggesting suggesting could at least be possible. Because ultimately for, for me, this comes down to I'm solving a problem. I'm attempting to solve a problem. The problem is our species is careening towards self-annihilation. And the, the only avenue that I see for survival is for us to deliberately and immediately undertake collective transformation of consciousness. So that's the goal or the solution. And I'm working backwards. How would this ever be possible? Of course, it's not possible. And that's where the fun comes for me is imagining, well, what if it was? And what did I want to say? Oh, okay. Let me address your fearful view a little bit more. 
because you were saying, yeah, so I was suggesting that by the nature of psychedelic experience, it's freeing and therefore likely not to be subject to the types of control you were suggesting. But at the same time, we do know, as you pointed out, that there have been um, programs and experiments run by the CIA and I'm sure others uh, to try to manipulate and control people using psychedelics. And we don't, because I'm sure some of it is top secret or whatever, we don't necessarily know if they ever succeeded. We do know some examples where they probably didn't succeed, like Theodore Kaczynski. Uh, and, you know, interestingly, he then goes on to become uh, the so-called Unabomber. And unfortunately, his sort of philosophical message, you know, the industrial revolution and its consequences becomes lost as a result of his maniacal tactics. But, you know, he was talking about, you know, a sort of ecological disaster decades ago. Was that the result of his, the experimentation upon him or other things? We know he was a brilliant guy, was at Harvard and whatever. I don't know. Point being that we know that at least attempts have been made to use psychedelics to control people in this fashion. But then that for me is where we remember the difference here. The CIA is like the most authoritarian, most secretive, arguably the most evil organiz human organization on the planet. So if they're doing it, of course it's going to be you know, cruel and, and for bad purposes. Uh, whereas I'm suggesting someone, a, a, a sort of moral or spiritual leader, Marianne Williamson, for example, I love Marianne Williamson. I don't know what your thoughts are uh, on her, uh, but she ran as a presidential candidate in the Democratic primary. She's not a politician. She's a, you know, spiritual leader. Someone like that comes into the office of the presidency and does the types of things I was saying in a manner totally alien to the you know, conventional operation of the presidency, making use of the formal authority and the trappings of the state and all that kind of stuff and the power to achieve this president's goal. But it's just a means to an end. I think that could not be susceptible to the kind of control uh, and manipulation that you were suggesting. It seems to me that could only work under one condition. <laughs> Which is? And that condition is that Marianne Williamson coerces every member of Congress, every member of the civil service at all levels to undergo the ritual. Well, that's an interesting, so would she have the power? She could certainly order the military. She could order the military. She couldn't order Congress to do it. Uh, the, the problem is that, you, that if what you think about government is true, that it is an institution, perhaps at every level, that is built on power 
exists for power and knows nothing but power, then every level below the president, below Marianne Williamson, is going to be opposed to what she's doing because yes. there isn't any control over these, these rituals. And in fact, they may be leading in the wrong way. So I, I, I'm, com I'm completely fearful <laughs> of, of that view. Yeah. That you can use, that you can somehow transform an institution built of power and distrust into one that is benevolent uh, and is concerned about the common good. I just, I've never seen it. I don't think anybody's ever seen it. When did it ever exist? When did that ever exist? I, I don't know. I'd have to think. I'd have to think if it if it has ever. But uh, you know, as Socrates says, just because our visions cannot become reality doesn't make them any less valuable. Well, no, that's fine. You can have the vision, but but if your concern is is saving the planet and the species, right. we have to go beyond what the imagination tells us and and bring that into some perspective from reality. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Reality. I agree. So, so, so the fantasy is not enough. No, uh, but, it, but, but I think, I think the tactic of the, the, the groundswell, the grassroots is actually an effective tactic. Let me ask you about the Occupy Wall Street movement. Yeah. That was uh, across Europe and the United States. I don't know if it, was, it wasn't worldwide, right? Uh, it did become worldwide. Uh, it became national for sure. National I don't for sure. Know, I don't know if it caught on worldwide before it ended in New York, but there were definitely Occupy movements globally later. I just don't know if it was at fast enough because Occupy Wall Street didn't really last that long before they got shut down infiltrated and shut down by Barack yes because Obama. they yes they we talked about it a little bit that for me they lacked they lacked uh, organization they definitely did and the second thing i said i think they lacked uh, focus i think they lacked vision yes and they're then what they did were things that allowed the state to shut them down they occupied buildings they occupied parks they were driven out of those things Okay, but my point about that is that there was a movement there that uh, could be highly decentralized, that people didn't care what the government, in fact, they were opposed to a lot of what the government was doing, though it was an anti-corporation movement, right? Yeah, Which really. Is, you know, come on, the same thing as government, pretty much. Yeah, it's a uh, corporatocracy. It's yeah. a unified corporate government establishment. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going with the grassroots movement, that, that the, the power of the ritual is so large and so effective that people are going to clamor for it, irrespective of what the government wants. The government, I mean, if we were in the era of Nixon, maybe he'd want the FBI and the CIA to try to shut it down. But you know, like trying that's like trying to shut down the anti-war movement and the anti-women's you know, movement or the uh, civil rights movement. You couldn't do it. Right. Yeah, well, you can I'm, kill the Black Panthers. Yeah. But that didn't stop the movement. And right? I you think can. That's... You can you can try the, the Chicago seven, but that didn't stop the movement. Right. So, so that's what I'm talking about. Something that the groundswell would just be incredible. Yes. And it could be decentralized as you suggested, where there would be people who know, know what's going on, but you, you would, you know, train the cadre of, of clinicians and guides to go off and run their own. 
you know, he, here's what we do. Here are the tools, you know, use it where you, you think it needs to be used, build it the way you think it needs to be built, you know, build it up. I think it's the way to go. And I think you've got to actually create a movement of this. I mean, in other words, I don't, I think it's fanciful, but I think it's, it's also pragmatic. I, so I agree with everything you're saying about the grassroots. I think it's, I think it's as important as the um, movement from above, but I'm not ready or willing to abandon or even really curtail what I'm saying about the importance of that uh, element from above. I actually think it's essential. And I think, so I if, hear- If you could guarantee me- Yes. That, I don't know what we call these people, the, the ritualists- <laughs> The trip guides. <laughs> the trip guides. If you could guarantee me that the, the trip artists <laughs> would become as effective politically as the Tea Party, mm and take over institutions of government the way the Tea Party took over the Republican agenda and the, and the Congress, Republican Congress, Right. Party. then I might be with you. But I, I need, yeah, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see the, see the blueprint for it because the, the concern is that they would become just as you were talking about the Justice Democrats. They become co-opted. Yes. By the system, because the system is almost designed to do exactly that. Again, I come back to this point that institutions are built of and on power. Yes. So if, so if they could infiltrate like the Fabians who failed trying to infiltrate <laughs> uh, the Liberal Party in Great Britain, if they could be like the Tea Party and get in there and wreak havoc and take things over, then, I, then I'm okay with that. I, I, just, I just worry about the power structures. I worry about the institutions and how they're designed. Yes. Uh, this, this systemic problems to me are so grand that I'd like to see them simply avoided <laughs> by having the grassroots just do its thing and think that the, the, the power of the ritual will overcome the power of the state. That's fair. I, I think like you, it's, it's a, it's a crucial concern to address. It's not something that can be sidestepped, which is to say what I'm hearing and what you're saying is like, look, the entire apparatus of the state, both in its structure and in the personalities of the individuals who occupy roles within it, all of it is fundamentally opposed to this type of revolutionary transformation. And it will fight tooth and nail, and many of the people will fight tooth and nail to either resist or co-opt it. Is that, that's the basic thrust of what you're saying, right? Right. Like the state is our enemy here. Yes. And I agree. Or an obstacle. Yeah, yes, yes. Okay, I don't want the CIA to turn us off again like they did last time. You're right, they're an <laughs> obstacle, not an enemy. But- uh, so that's, that, that is where I would need to spend much more time going into detail. And I haven't thought this through yet, but my hunch and my sort of intuition and where I want to go with it, at least to think it through is that 
that's the significance of this sort of transcendent figure coming at the head, the head of the body politic and catalyzing transformation within. In a, and it would be, it's like, it could be an antiodromic transformation. It's it, and I think it must be. Because to me, I know, I know you want to resist. Let me finish. I do. I do. I want to say that I, I think that, I, and I think that I have to believe this because if I believe that an individual who is a regressive, conservative, authoritarian, if I believe that that individual can undergo a therapeutic perhaps psychedelically therapeutic transformative experience and become completely different, the opposite of what he or she has been all or most of his or her life, then so too can the structure of government transform in that fashion, even if it just means that it falls away as a result of this. So, what I mean, let me final point before you tell me why I'm wrong, is that the yes, many people I think in Congress, for example, will resist because of their incentives, both as politicians and at, because of the sort of constraints or the expectations of the role that they occupy. But that's only one face or aspect of who they are or their identity. They are at least in other ways, and we might be able to argue in more important or more basic ways, people who are susceptible to growth. And, you know, if we really believe in like an idealistic vision of human development, they are seeking their you know spirit is speak is seeking expansion or however you want to put it so some of them are gonna take the mushrooms with marianne i i think they will and maybe not all but enough at some point like i i i believe that i i think that if it was implemented yeah. in the right way you, you could foment transformation even within the very and and necessarily within the very structure and system that is most thoroughly opposed that's the exact transformation that has to occur okay i you and i agree come we convene on on this point okay all human beings are capable of transformation and i think in many ways all human beings yearn for transformation right. they don't want change because change is scary, but they want, if they can transform to be more loving, that's not scary because they're not asked to be something different. They're just asked to be something more. Right. More loving. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Who is more likely to convince somebody to get the vaccine? Joe Biden saying, come on, folks, let's get the vaccine for the sake of the community. 
or your cousin or your sister or your brother or your father or, or your daughter saying, come on, the vaccine is safe. I've got it. Take this thing. I think right. it's the family member. I agree. Okay. Similarly, Liz Cheney, who appears to have come to her senses on one and only one issue, which was that the January 6th attack of the Capitol was an insurrection and it was fomented by the president of the United States, the ex-president of the United States, and that Joe Biden is the current president. Well, he's going to be president again in like a month, as we yeah, know. Yeah, that's right. We got to hurry. Yeah. Uh, Liz Cheney, I think, is probably supportive of the LGBTQ community because her sister is gay. Yes. Well, we know that Dick Cheney has explicitly said that, right? That he, okay. he was against it and then yes. his daughter came out and he totally and, changed. And, and this is my point. Let, let the movement change people's hearts and challenge their minds. Let the movement do it. Yes. Yes, they're going to be members of Congress when these rituals are going on who are, are going to participate, want to participate and will participate and there will be a change. And that's not unlike they're having family members who are gay and suddenly the gay movement can't be stopped. No. Right. The, the movement to legalize marijuana can't be stopped. The government wasn't doing anything but opposing these things until suddenly it became overwhelming and they had to accept it. And that's what I'm saying. That's where I think you and I converge. Yes. Where the movement would be so strong at that point that people would be engaging in the rituals, having the experience and, and coming along so that there's nothing they can do to shut it down. But but what didn't occur was that LGBTQ people became president. <laughs> right. Or, right. But OK. Or that people who wanted marijuana legalized became president that they just come along with it because the cultural tide has shifted. Yes. So that's where I am. So that's why I'm saying it, it isn't that it's impossible, but it's it's extra institutional. It's not within the institutions. These things are things are happening. It's people in the institutions are changing, but the institutions are still rock dumb in the same <laughs> right. The same way they've always been. Yes. I, I agree. Like, and I'm glad that you're sort of, you know, pushing this component because you're articulating it very well. And I think that it this, is this, this, by the way, is your dissertation, right? Yeah, it is. That's this, why I'm this talking. is it. Yeah, this I is, know. <laughs> I mean, this is what you need to be. I know it, that's it's why a dialogue. I wanted to bring it up. Yeah. It's a, it, it's a dialogue with people talking about this because it's, it's top bottom. It's bottom up. It's it's everything. It's transformation. Hundred uh, percent. When yeah. I had I had this idea about that's why I brought it up the way I did. This whole conversation has been me attempting to explain to you my thought process that led me to this point where I was wondering, what if the president <laughs> handed out psychedelics to everyone? What if that was the answer? And all this stuff building backwards from that and all the questions that it raises, political, cultural, psychological, educational, all this stuff. Well, let, let, let me say immediately what, what you need to do. Yeah. You need to contact Marion Williamson. I should. No, no. I didn't say you should do it. <laughs> I do need it. to. Okay. Yes. Because you could ask her this question. Say, imagine that you were in the Oval Office. And you were convinced of the power 
of these psychedelic experiences in a clinical setting, would you have pushed for something like that as a national program? Ask yeah. her what she, I mean, but all she can say is keep him away from me or never respond. <laughs> this is a nut. Don't let him, don't let him get in touch with me. But, oh yeah. I mean, I've, I've emailed Chomsky many times. I've, I learned this from you. Just, just contact people. You yeah, told me they, how you used to just reach out to random ass people. Sometimes they write back. And they almost always did. They almost yeah. always did. No matter how famous they were. Right. Yep. I got into a conversation with Isaiah Berlin, Charles Taylor. <laughs> right. These, as long as I, I think all you have to do is be sincere and succinct. Yeah, exactly. When you reach out to these people yeah. and they will respond most of the time. Yeah. And, and then and also go to your go to people, go to Chomsky, go to Chris Hedges and say, what do you think about this idea? Yes. I mean, because the the top down, bottom up. I mean, this is it. This is this is the pie. I, I agree, man. I'm very glad to hear you say that because this was like a crystallization of many, many things for me coming together. And it's a framework, right? It right. is what it is. Ultimately, it's a framework for the dialogue. So thank you for saying that. And But I, I want to continue a little bit on the train of thought because there yeah. was- Oh yeah, I didn't mean to derail. Yeah, no, you're not. I'm just circling back in my mind to what we were talking about, which is, okay, you were emphasizing the cultural elements and the, the bottom up stuff. And I agree there. But I think the examples you gave to support your point also support my point. Because I think actually the bottom up and the top down interact sort of dialectically to produce that what appears to be very sudden and drastic change. So we think about gay marriage, right? right? It sort of started small. It was like, I think a court case in Massachusetts, right? That was the first opening step. And Massachusetts was the only state that legalized it. I mean, of course there was the whole gay rights and gay liberation movement. Well, that's before what I was going to say. That's, I was going to say, I mean, you can't start with the court case. Yeah. I'm not right? disputing the, that. The groundswell. Before. But at some point it did begin to cross over into the institutional element and that becomes essential because what we were seeking, what the gay liberation movement was seeking, I think, was exactly that, like legal equality, you know? Do, do, do you remember the, the seed crystal? For this? Oh, For, like Stonewall riots or? No, no, no. no, no. I mean, all of that. I mean, e even, the, even the AIDS epidemic right. was a way of... of of garnering sympathy for what the hell was going on. I mean, what one of the one of the great proponents of helping the gay community was Nancy Reagan and yeah. Ronald Reagan because they had been involved in the Hollywood community. I don't know if Ronald Reagan ever could, could say to himself, admit to himself that Rock Hudson was gay, <laughs> uh, but but th that that wasn't a, that wasn't a seed crystal. For that movement what was a seed crystal for gay marriage was joe biden right coming out and saying this administration supports gay marriage before completely, obama before completely Clinton. blindsiding obama who had yep. who had opposed gay marriage when he campaigned yes right? so that that was a moment when suddenly they said we support gay marriage but look at that like that also is sort of an example it's like here you have this authority figure validating yeah, now, it's no, not I, I, in a vacuum, right? No, There's the exactly. whole movement prior to exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. But 
at some point, the movement does necessarily need to interact with the institutions and yes. the establishment. Good point. Because they're seeking that goal of yes. recognition from the establishment. No, that's right? a good or, point. But yeah. but it, again, it dovetails with what I've been saying, which is that the movement at that point was too powerful for the government to co-opt it. You couldn't yes. stop it. Biden couldn't come out and say, I mean, uh, Obama couldn't come out and say, nope, 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 we're opposing it. No, it was too late. It was It was done then. Yes. The movement was too strong. That's what I'm saying. As long as the movement is strong enough to prevent the government from co-opting it or redirecting it or using it for nefarious purposes, I'm completely with you. Once you've got that power, okay, that it, that it can thwart the power at the top and then use that power in conjunction with its own movement to create something even greater. I got you. So then we we really completely agree. We just were yeah. we needed to articulate it a little more. Yeah, you had I, to get it. Yeah, it's it's the yeah the two ends of the spectrum. Then how do we get to to a middle? Uh, and that's what I think was happening. But that's why I said, I mean, you, the issue you're wrestling with, the top down and the bottom up, is I mean, that's 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 it. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I I think it's I do actually think that. So then one question becomes it's sort of an empirical question: Is there a movement or it, if not explicit, at least implicit or latent movement in support of psychedelics. And I think, or, you know, I guess psychedelics as a catch-all for the, what all this stuff we've been talking about. And I think obviously, yes, whether it's big enough or not yet. Not yet, no. May be the question. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know it's not, right? Yeah. You, know, you know there's a positive push because yes. you have people like Michael Pollan and Tim Ferriss. Yep. Uh, well, well, Tim Ferriss is somebody who's been financing using his own money and I guess gathering more money to help finance some of these studies. But, you know, they're 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 popping up in centers all over the place in Imperial College in London and UCLA. And now there's Johns one in Hopkins. San Francisco, Johns Hopkins, NYU. They're yep. they're they're bubbling up. And so it's it's happening. And what was the state? Is it Oregon that is now legal decriminalized or legalized all? And I think the city of Denver uh, has legalized mushrooms. So, yeah, so it's happening. It's just not anywhere near, uh, where it needs to be, but you but, can tell it's at that. It may, you know, we're getting to a tipping point. Perhaps it's, it's at least bubbling up, you know, we can, yeah, make, but perhaps but here, we can facilitate it. Here's where it isn't. Yeah. It isn't. It is now in, in therapeutic settings. People have come at, I mean, this is a, if you and I were backing up and looking at it from a, a meta perspective, right? We would say this is the perfect way to do it. You introduce these uh, clinical trials to help people deal with debilitating ailments, PTSD, drug addiction, depression, fear of death. Okay, that that's that's great because who who's going to oppose that? People might say, "Well, I'm a little suspicious about using psychedelics," but the results have been really impressive. Right. Okay. What's missing is any use of this as a transformational drug. What what those of us in the '60s were using it recreationally. I was going to say for a bad purpose, it wasn't a bad purpose. We just didn't have any focus. We didn't know what we were doing. And, and right. along the way, some people had just incredible breakthrough experiences. 
But what's missing is the ritualistic aspect of this, where you can use what's been learned in the clinical settings and broaden it out to people who are healthy. Yes. Yes. That's, that's yes. What is that's, that phrase? Uh, I forget who said it, but they said psychedelics are for the, the betterment of well people. Yeah, there you go. That's perfect. Yeah. Psychedelics are for the betterment of well people. So I wrote in uh, stalking white crows. I have a chapter on what I think was called death trip yeah. about a fictionalized woman who's undergoing, who undergoes a psychedelic experience because she has cancer and she's afraid to die. And at the end of that chapter, I talked about the idea of creating these uh, centers where people could come to overcome their fears, but you could also come to become healthier. Right. That hasn't happened. That's not being talked about. So the movement is uh, not arrested. That's not fair. It, but it, it's, it's, uh, it, it, at this point, it's just immature. It's nascent. So somebody like you has got to make a commitment to getting a movement like this going. People like you. Yes. Uh, but I, it can be done, but you got some groundwork to do. That's, that's, you know, you have dissertation to write, but what yes. I'm saying is, yeah, it's not ready yet. I mean, it's just, it's just appearing, right? It's just on the cracking the surface. <laughs> right. Right. And part of, I think my contribution is at least in one way will be to think through these questions from the perspective that I have raised here. Um, yeah. If only for myself, but uh, I think, you know, because I, this isn't just, um, it's not just academic, right? right. So that, like, this is what I've always liked about your work and what I like about any, what I would say is like a real political theorist is it's actually aimed at changing the world, solving a problem. Yeah. Like Mark, that famous line from Marx, I use it all the time. The philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point is to change it. Uh, So, yeah. So approaching it from this angle of saying, this is this is a, a path. This is a path or a vision, as you've mentioned many times, a vision for a possible future. Um, that is really you know compelling and motivating to me and inspiring to me to to want to actually undertake the work of thinking it through and writing it. Yeah, yeah. When I was uh, first at ASU, I'd been hired, and I'd probably been there a couple of weeks. Uh, the chair of the department was a woman named Ruth Jones, mm. whose husband uh, was Warren Miller, who was one of the grand men of American politics, one of the founders of the American Voter, one of the co-authors of the American Voter, what an incredibly influential text, and, and, a, wow. and, a, and a delightful man who, who confessed uh, in a meeting of the junior fellows that he wanted to be a theorist, mm. but his advisor said he wasn't smart enough. <laughs> so that's what he that's what warren said yeah but anyway he uh he invited me and i don't remember why he didn't invite my wife he invited me to his house he and ruth and we were sitting out by the pool having evening cocktails and i had just uh i don't know that my book had been accepted for publication at oxford 
university press, but it was pretty close to that time. And he said, um, you know, your book is about liberalism and communitarianism. And you're really talking about how you can transform people, you know, get, move them out of atomism. This, this wasn't his term. He didn't, I don't think he ever read my dissertation. Oh, I was going to say, it sounds like he actually read it. <laughs> I don't think he did, but oh, okay. he said, but we, I guess he was asking me what's in it, what it's about. And I said, you know, the problem with the foundation of liberalism is that it's, it's based on atomism and it isn't really atomism. It's really autonomy. And we talked about that. And he said oh, to yeah. me, and this is the point of the story. He said, you have to decide if you're going to have an academic career, whether you want to be a political theorist or a change agent. Right. And I made a decision. I didn't make a decision that then, but I think in the back of my mind, I was thinking, I'm a theorist. This is what I do. I, I play with ideas. Uh, you have an, an idea as a political theorist that you can use to become a change agent. Mm. But you're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to do this because at this point, this is your idea. There's nobody else out there talking about this. Who else is talking about this? Have you heard anybody talking about using psychedelics in a ritualized setting to make people healthier with the, with the expectation of having them grow their love to save the species and the planet? No, no, no. no but you think about how that could be done. Wait, what, the other, the, what's the alternative? The alternative is that the Pacific Northwest completely bursts into flames. The whole right, fucking place. <laughs> yes. But, but the whole place just burns to the ground. Right. Right. And people go, oh, my God, it's hot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we got to do something. I mean, you have to have a, a, a real catastrophe. And what you're trying to avoid is the, the depth of a catastrophe that is so awful that people cannot look away. Right. Okay. Well, what would, what would get us to, the, to a mind change would be something like this like the ritual use of psilocybin to affect transformation. It's great. <laughs> Thank but you. I'm, but until I'm dead, I'm not <laughs> going to let you not be a change agent. You're going to have to, you're going to have to wear both hats. I appreciate that. I mean that I, I think, I think. And even when I'm dead, by the way, <laughs> you'll be I'll, haunting my I'll be ass. haunting you. Yeah, yeah no doubt. Well, okay. I would say a couple of things. First, I appreciate the kind words and, you know, it's very inspiring also to hear that you like the idea because, uh, you know, I, I feel good about it, but also you, I think the change maker and theorist distinction is important, but also phony. And I think you're underselling yourself by thinking if you do think, and I, I don't think you do think that you're not a change agent because I think you are, you're just thinking about it in a different way. I think you're, you have been a change agent as a teacher, for sure, for many people, including myself. And that is also how I think of myself thus far, really. I mean, my work with Extinction Rebellion, you know, that was great. And that was, you know, that movement did have a real impact on the world. And I was a small part of it. In that, uh, But also, the influence on students is how I think of my, you know, my uh, change, uh, effective, uh, the effect of my change in the world. And yeah, that that's, that's going to be a part of it. Yeah, that's, that's an uh, uh, intellectual part of what you're going to do. 
but your vision requires you to take greater action yes. than that. In other words, it's, just, it's not an either or, it's not one or the other. Right. And that, that's where I was going with it. So it's the, I have, there's this quote from the, uh, Sheldon Wallen that I like very much. I think it's from at the beginning of his book on Tocqueville, uh, presence of the past, where he says, it's like the very first fucking paragraph. And he says, um, that political theory is primarily a civic and secondarily an academic activity. And it's beautiful. That, yeah. And that has just yeah. always stuck with me. Like that's, yeah. I, you know, that's it. Yeah. My favorite quote from Sheldon Wollen, uh, I'm roughly paraphrasing, but it's pretty accurate. Something like this. You're a fucking idiot. Get out of my class. <laughs> Were you in his class? No, oh, okay. no, but I had a, a colleague, a friend, uh, a, short-term colleague, long-term friend who was a student of his, who claims that at the end of a graduate seminar, he went around and talked to every person about their weaknesses, strengths and weaknesses. And wow. then when he finished, you say, okay, now you can leave. And then he would just talk to the next one. So my shorthand for that is you're a fucking idiot. Get out of class. Yeah. I can see. I mean, he must've been, you know, quite a presence in the classroom. I can only imagine what it would have been like to have a seminar with him. I know Ball studied under him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, or, that was or, Ball was at the, the golden age of Berkeley when they, when um, uh, Jack Shar was there and Wolin. Pitkin, right? Uh, or she Pitkin. was a student, maybe. Uh, she may have crossed over at that point. I don't remember. There, I don't know what the crossover was. And there was one other person, an incredible theorist who was there, whose name escapes me. But yeah, so uh, that 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 was quite a subfield. Of yeah. Theorists. I mean, anyway, I, back to you. Yes. Uh, so, oh, do you have something you wanted to add? No, I was just going to say, I just want to reinforce this this idea that you you're going to be the John Dewey of <laughs> of the transformation to save the planet. That'd be nice. I mean, I'm going to do my best to say what I need to say. If anybody listens, that'd be lovely. Um, yeah, there's a story about Dewey. I don't know if you know the story that Dewey, I, I think he was just pretty much, I don't know if he was going to study philosophy. Uh, he was at the University of Chicago as a yep. student and uh, he got involved in the Pullman strike. Do you know this story? I knew he got involved in the Pullman strike. I'm not sure like what impact that might've had on his life trajectory. Complete impact. Okay. That, that, that philosophy, political philosophy, couldn't just be a classroom endeavor. Oh, and I don't sense. remember if it was if it was the Pullman strikers or if it was Eugene V. Debs who actually kind of pulled him <laughs> in, into uh, activism. That's incredible. Yeah, I knew that that I knew that he um, had participated in those and that they did uh, impact him. Uh, yeah. But I didn't know that they led sort of that was the in, inspiration for that insight that philosophy and the world need to interact with each yeah, other. Yeah, and, and it was good that he that he took the the side of of activism because he from all accounts was just an absolutely dreadful teacher. Yeah, I I have kind of heard that like he was uh you know boring and just uh that like the epitome of that so-called sage on the stage. Yeah, he approach. would just just read papers. He'd read his papers. Yeah, that's I, it's just baffling to me that somebody who wrote, you know, so well about 
<laughs> yeah. uh, about it, the practice of teaching would then yeah. be fucking horrible at implementing it. Be terrible. Not, not even try, apparently. Like, Well, I guess maybe he knew his, his strengths and weaknesses. But yeah, I mean, the guy who wrote so well about about transforming education. Yes. But, yeah, it's just remarkable. Well, you can tell by looking at pictures of him. He seemed like he was a very sort of severe personality. You know, he it, he's just like does not seem welcoming, really. Like he, I see pictures of him in this black cloak. Yeah, uh, you know, he was a well, son of a Vermont farmer, wasn't he? I mean, he was a guy from rural Vermont. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. What are they like? I don't know. Well, I mean, Bernie Sanders, although he was from Brooklyn. So, yeah, come on. Bernie's, you, know. a, you pointed out, Bernie's a Brooklyn Jew. <laughs> yeah, who, thought, right. who thought Bernie was going to become this firebrand and a, who was going to galvanize the some of the youth of America? Yes. Uh, but I mean, he did it in, you know, I, re- I would argue there's a su- significant Socratic dimension to his success. He was anti-authoritarian, essentially, in many ways. Uh, and that has a very intuitive and natural appeal to the youth. Um, So it's not surprising to me. Plus he was speaking to their material conditions. Youth in this country are the ones who are not only have lived that like my whole life has just been economic crash war, you know, endless cycles of this for the last 40 years. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. we're the ones who get to live through the shit storm that you boomers are leaving us behind. Exactly. So, That's know. what we're good at creating shit. Yes. Uh, yeah. This has been the, this is the remarkable part about, about Bernie. Well, what's remarkable about it is that it's unremarkable. Right. Bernie has talked about the people who have been stepped on that. That's that. I mean, that, that's the message. Yeah. And how this message doesn't unite left and right, I don't understand. Well, I mean, that's where we talked a little bit about this before. I think it did very much in 2016. And then he botched 2020, I think, under some compulsion, to be honest with you. Uh, and you mean his own compulsion? No, I think I think the party and possibly, uh, you know, uh, nefarious elements like the Alphabet Boys. Yeah, um, I, I actually think that's too easy on Bernie. Uh, no, I think, I think he made real mistakes himself. Yeah, uh, I, totally yeah. divorced from that. But I also think he, you know, they took him more seriously the second time around. And I think it showed like his opponents took him more seriously. Yeah, and they should have. I mean, that was important for them to do because he he did have a following. I, I just think that he. I think he miscalculated. I thought the whole from the beginning of, the, of his campaign to the end, he miscalculated in there, thought that if he got a third of the primary voters, he was going to win. It was a mistake, yep. a bad calculation. He never reached out to the Latino community. I mean, never reached out to the black community. No, he did, did a great so, job with Latinos. Yeah, his outreach there was tremendous. And why he couldn't then do the same thing. Maybe he was just too fucking old. I, think I can't do both. I can't do both. It's either going to be the blacks, Latinos. I can't. You got. You guys have to choose. I'm too old and tired. I think that was definitely part of it. And he has a right. You know, he's 80 now or whatever. Like he's yeah. been fighting since the freaking 50s or 60s for this stuff. So well, but you know, let this let this be a lesson to you. <laughs> yeah. On how you fight. Yes. Right. This this 
you know, it's the, it's the groundswell. Bernie was carried along by a groundswell. Absolutely. What we need is a younger Bernie. That's really what we need is a younger Bernie. <laughs> I'm pointing, listeners, I'm pointing to Rory. Well, thank you. I, you know, I, I'm trying. I'm trying to break in. I'm not opposed to getting my hands, you know, dirty in the system, I guess. If I, yeah, well, somebody's got to do it, you know. This, this system will chew you up at this point because that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to shut down people like you. Sure. Uh, so the but activism that... has got to, it's got to start grassroots. Not that I oppose the People's Party nomination, which should you win it, um, you should pursue it. Yeah, something like that. Because if it's the, not- At the very least, it would be good training for you to get out there and get smacked around by, uh, by a campaign. Yeah, right. People running against you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, listen, we're done. Yeah, we're. I we're feel like a, Bernie. All right, I'm done. I know I'm running out of steam. I wanted to make some more points, but we made enough points. So, well, keep the points in mind because I can't imagine that this isn't the conversation we need to be having at least uh, at the beginning of the next encounter. Yeah, I agree. There, will, I'm sure between now and next time we'll both have some thoughts to bring to the table. Yeah. And for those of you out there listening who uh, have somehow drifted off, fuck you people. Rory's <laughs> trying to save the damn planet and the species. So it's not as if this is a, a light topic that you can ignore. Exactly. Get with Perk the program. Up. Yeah. <laughs> Take right. some mushrooms and listen to it. Yeah. Agreed. Until next time, folks.
Did you bullshit last week? No. Did you try to bullshit last week? Yes.